So we will be in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 today. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, as a verse that is very common this time of year, one that brings us a lot of peace and that brings us a lot of hope. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. As we talked about last week, Isaiah prophesied these words during a time that Israel was in national decline. They were in national decline because they had turned their backs on God, they had begun worshiping idols, and this idol worship had led to some pretty deep, dark sin, some pretty deep, dark rebellion, and it had divided the nation. Isaiah was calling this nation of Israel who had gone so far into darkness, so far into sin, so far into idolatry, so far into immorality. He's calling them to repentance. It was a nation that was deeply divided by its pride and its selfishness. We see that in our culture today. Our nation today is deeply divided in its pride and its selfishness. Isaiah was speaking to a similar culture to ours. He's calling them to repentance. Isaiah was calling a nation that was deeply degraded by sin and idolatry. Sin degrades. Sin devalues. Sin harms. And Isaiah is calling a nation that has been deeply degraded by sin and idolatry, deeply divided by pride and selfishness, to repentance. And he called the nation to repentance by calling them back to faith in God. And by calling them back to faith in God, and to call them back to faith in God, he pointed them to the Messiah, to the Christ. And so in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah is telling us a little bit more about the Christ, who he's going to be, who he is, what his nature is. In Isaiah 9, 6, as we read this verse, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. In this verse, Isaiah is telling us about the Christ. That he would be born to us as a child, which means that he would be a human, just like the rest of us. He would be the Son given, the only begotten Son of God who has been given unto us on our behalf for us. And he speaks into the fact that this Christ, the Messiah, would be God in flesh. He would be divine. He speaks to the divinity of Christ. And ever since this prophecy, man has looked forward to the coming of the Christ, to the coming of Jesus. He is the one in whom we hope. That word hope means a confident expectation. It means you are looking forward to something with the expectation that you will realize it. We look forward to heaven. We don't hope that we're going to get into heaven like we hope that we win the lottery, like we hope the Cowboys will win the Super Bowl. That's been kind of disappointing over the past three decades. Like we hope that we're going to get a raise at work or a promotion. No, we look forward to it with a confident expectation that we have a solid chance and a solid reason to believe that what we are looking forward to we will receive. A woman who is expecting a child has hope. She has a confident expectation that she will give birth to a child, that she will hold the baby. Unto us, a child is born. 
Jesus Christ is in the one in whom we hope. The reason we have a confident expectation of heaven. The reason we have a confident expectation of salvation, of redemption, of seeing better days ahead is because of Jesus Christ, because of what he did on the cross. He is the one who will bring in the everlasting kingdom. A kingdom that will have no crime. A kingdom that will have no inflation. A kingdom that will have no famine, no supply chain issues, no, no issues with health care, no issues with politics. He is the one who will bring in the everlasting kingdom, and he is the one who will rescue us from this present life. Everybody has something that is bothering them today. Everyone has a problem, a health care problem, a financial problem, a family problem, a political problem, a career problem. Everybody feels in bondage to something today. We are going to be delivered from that bondage, and it is going to be Jesus Christ who delivers us from that bondage. We will be delivered from this world in which wrongfulness reigns supreme, which you cannot trust a FedEx delivery driver to deliver your package safely without kidnapping your kid. We will live in a world where you do not have to be afraid of who is standing behind you, of whether or not this man who is pretending to be Santa Claus has passed a criminal background check. We will live in a world where we will live without fear, without predation, without economic uncertainty, without sin, because the kingdom that Christ will establish will be established after he ends sin, after he ends wrongfulness. Guess what? In this kingdom, we will never more know death. I will be obsolete as a hospice chaplain in that kingdom, and I'm okay with that. I will be obsolete as a life insurance guy in that kingdom, and I am okay with that because I, even though I seem to work in the industry surrounding the passing of loved ones, I do not value that work more than I value the idea of living in a kingdom where there is no more death. We will be delivered from this present world, and it is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who will be the one to deliver us. And so when we read this verse, unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given, we need to realize this is where our hope is. This is where our confident expectation is. And this verse, it speaks to the humanity of Christ. It speaks to the sonship of Christ. And it speaks to the divinity of Christ. And I'll say it that way, like, oh, here comes the seminary lecture. I'll give you all a degree when we're done. Okay, it'll be, it'll be good. But unto us a child is born. Unto us a child is born. The Christ, the Messiah, was promised to be with us. He was promised to come to us. And the way he would arrive would be through birth, just like everyone else who arrives in this world arrives. He would be born just like us. He, the Christ was promised to be born unto us, to be the child born unto us. He would be born among us. He would be born among us. He would be born to us. And he would be born for us. He would not just appear from the heavens and he would not just mysteriously appear out of nowhere. Nobody knows this man's background. He would be born unto us. He would be born. His birth would be known. It would be human. It would be a, not common as in an everyday occurrence, but common as in, you know, this was a common man, a working class family. All right. He would be born unto us. Unto us, a child is born. You look at the birth of Christ and scripture tells us, that our Lord was born to a woman. It was a woman who gave birth to him. That sounds kind of basic, but in today's culture, you find yourself having to explain how this works these days. He would be born to a woman. Now, here's what's, here's what's miraculous about his birth. He would be born to a virgin. 
Isaiah 7, 14 says, uh, says that a virgin shall conceive and bear a child and bring forth a son. And Matthew tells us that she would call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. The scripture tells us that our Lord was born to a woman, a virgin by the name of Mary. And the scriptures tell us that he was born in a stable. Why was he born in a stable? Because there was no room at the inn. He was laid in a manger. And this birth was witnessed. It was witnessed. It wasn't just Mary and Joseph coming out and saying, hey, we had a baby and we had him in a stable and we laid him in a manger and the animals were all quiet and well behaved. There were multiple witnesses to them. The shepherds. The birth of Jesus was announced to the shepherds in the field by an angel. I don't know how much more divine you have to get than that. The shepherds went and they beheld the child and they saw the child and they told Mary everything the angel told him, how he would be the savior of the nations, how he was the Christ, the redeemer. And they went through the streets of Bethlehem telling everybody, hey, we were, we were out in the field watching our sheep. This angel appeared, this choir, this heavenly host appeared and they sang praises to God and they told us that this was going to be the Christ. And, and they went and they witnessed everybody. And everybody was like, oh, wow, this is, this, is kind of, this is kind of interesting. But Mary is treasuring up all these things in her heart. And then the wise men appeared. How many of them were there? We don't know. Well, there are three gifts. There were three gifts. We don't know how many shepherds there were. The manger scene only has one shepherd. If you buy a nativity set, there's only one shepherd. And there's three wise men. But there's debate on whether or not the wise men were actually at the manger. Uh, but there's three of them, and there's only one shepherd. I think there ought to be a couple of more shepherds in my, in my nativity. He said, I feel like I've been kind of um, shortchanged here. But nonetheless, his birth was witnessed by the wise men. They, they saw the star. They saw the, the prophecy of the star in Numbers chapter 24, 17. They traveled. They showed up to Jerusalem saying, where is he that's born the king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east. The Messiah has been born. The Messiah has arrived. And the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 2 that when they arrived in Jerusalem and Herod heard that these wise men from the east came looking for the Messiah, came looking for the Christ, that he had been born. The Bible tells us that he was greatly troubled. And not only was he troubled, but Jerusalem was troubled with him. His birth was a major event. It was well known. He was the child born unto us. And why is this important? Why am I going off on this tangent? I'll tell you why. Because his birth, being born to a woman, being born the way he was, miraculously, yet the natural way, the way the rest of us are born, his birth being witnessed by the shepherds, by the wise men, troubling Jerusalem, getting Herod upset and feeling threatened about his position, it was all part of this prophecy that unto us a child would be born. And unto us a child is born speaks to the humanity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He was a person just like the rest of us. John chapter 1 verse 14 tells us, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That Christ, the Messiah, our Lord, was in the beginning with God, created the heavens and the earth with God. But in this moment when he is born, he becomes flesh. He puts on a body. He becomes human. And he lives the human existence just like the rest of us. The humanity of Christ identified him with us. In other words, he could identify with us. He could understand us. He's been where we've been. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, the Bible says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. 
We're not worshiping a Jesus who has never felt pain. We are not worshiping a Jesus who has never had emotional pain inflicted upon him by the betrayal of others, who has never had to work a day in his life, who just stands above us and says, I am Jesus, worship me. No, he's been there with us. He's been in the trenches with us. It's not that he cannot be touched with a feeling of our infirmities, but the Bible says in Hebrews 4.15 that he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. What that means is the temptations, you would think of that as being, you know, I'm tempted to sin this way. The temptation is talking about, in Hebrews chapter 4, it's the temptation of being a human. The temptation being the trial, being the tribulation, being the suffering that goes along with being a human. When Jesus came and he was born, he was born the way every one of us is born, naturally. He was born that way. He's human. He's just like us. Think about this for a second. The creator of the universe. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. He made all things, and without him was not anything made that was made. All right? He became flesh and dwelt among us. I want you all to think about this. The creator of the universe in a human body had to learn how to walk, had to learn how to talk, had to, had to be potty trained. Isn't that a fun phase of parenting? Had to learn how to be potty trained had to go to school. He wrote the scriptures. He inspired through his spirit the writing of the Old Testament scriptures, but yet he had to go to rabbinical school just like the other kids, and he had to memorize the scriptures that he had written. He had to grow up. He had to learn a trade. He worked with his, fa his uh, earthly father. He had no earthly father, but Joseph stood in the gap. Joseph was the earthly father figure in that household, he worked with Joseph and adopted his trade of being a carpenter, of being a craftsman. The creator of the universe had to learn to walk like us, had to learn to talk like us, had to learn to live like us. And, and he worked as a tradesman. He worked as a craftsman. He worked as a, as, a, as a construction guy, as a carpenter, the Bible tells us. And he went through all the same stuff we went through, upset customers. Uh, he, he had to he struggle to make ends meet. He has felt our infirmities. He has faced our temptation. And he did all of this without sin, having lived the full experience. And scripture tells us because he lived our experience, he is sympathetic to our needs. And because he is sympathetic to our needs, we can come confidently before him in prayer, knowing that he will hear our prayers and that he will help. Don't you feel more comfortable when you're talking to your doctor and your doctor is telling you that you have this illness and this illness scares you, but your doctor says, I know how it is. I had this illness or this illness runs in my family. I'll tell you what, I had COVID here about a year and a half ago and I'm there talking to Dr. Cooper and Dr. Cooper was telling me, he's like, I have treated 400 COVID patients so far. I haven't lost a single one of them. That made me feel better. But then he asked me, are you a diabetic? And while I had not officially received the diagnosis, my A1C had been off the charts. And so I told him that. And he says, okay. He says, I'm going to treat you like a member of my family. Because apparently that runs in his family too. He goes, I'm... Puts his, puts his hand on my back and says, I'm going to treat you like you are a member of my family. Now, in that situation, do you think I felt a lot better about the situation? Do you think I felt a little bit of comfort from that? That's Jesus. He's been through it. He's been through it. He's experienced it. 
And when you pray to him, he responds because he has been there. Having been made human and living the experience that we live not only makes him more sympathetic to our cause and makes him more understanding of our weakness, our frailties, and our need of his redemption, but it also qualified him to purchase our redemption. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, the Bible says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him. That word behooved is a good word. We don't use that word anymore. But it means he was so motivated by his love and his passion for us that he had to take these certain actions. Therefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, and notice this, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Since it was man that sinned against God, then for justice to happen, judgment would have to happen against man. Jesus Christ became the man so that he could bear that justice and judgment on our behalf. And in doing so, he reconciled us to God. This verse, unto us a child is born, tells us about the humanity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then we keep reading, unto us a son is given. Now this speaks into the divinity of Christ, but we will get into the divinity a little bit deeper here in a couple of minutes. This, his sonship and a son being given this is a big deal, and this speaks to the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When you read this, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, at first glance it may seem a little redundant. Okay, we've got a baby, we get it, it's a boy, congratulations. But what this is saying is that a son has been given unto us. And if a son has been given unto us, someone has given to us their son. And who has given to us their son? But our heavenly father, God, the son given is the only begotten son of God. This speaks of the divinity of Christ and his divine nature. But the fact that he is given, it shows us a certain sacrifice made by God on our behalf. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God, compelled by his love for us, gave his only begotten son, whom he dearly loved. His only begotten son was given over to man, and man treated him as shamefully as man possibly could. Our Lord, in his time on this earth, he endured mockery. He endured persecution. When he was arrested, he endured false trials, false accusations. He endured chastisement. He endured beatings, and he endured more mockery. He was abandoned by his disciples who had professed their love for him. He was abandoned and denied by the one who said that he was willing to fight and die for him. Although, give Peter some credit. He did try. He was then rejected by his own people. He was put on a stage. Here's Jesus of Nazareth, and here's Barabbas. Barabbas was a murderer, he was a thief, he was a revolutionist, he created much harm to the people, much harm to the Roman Empire, but the people chose Barabbas. Pilate, he thinks, that, and he's like, Barabbas is such a bad guy, his own people don't even like him. If I put Jesus up there next to Barabbas and they get to choose one to set free, they'll surely choose Jesus, because Barabbas is just that bad of a guy. And they chose Barabbas. Have you ever looked at an election result and scratched your head and said, what were the people thinking on that one? This one has me scratching my head, but we know, we know what the scripture says, and we knew that he was going to be rejected and despised by men. He was rejected and despised by men. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, was handed over to man. He was given unto us, 
And when he was given unto us, when he was given to man, man treated him as shamefully as he possibly could. He was rejected by his people, his nation, and then he went to the cross where he was nailed to the cross and lifted up. And when he was nailed to the cross, Pilate put it on a sign in multiple languages, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Why would he do that? Was he professing his faith in Jesus as Messiah? No. He's saying, this is y'all's king and I'm crucifying him. I've conquered your nation completely today. Don't any of you others try this. He was sending a message. He was sending a message of final victory over the Jews and over Jerusalem because the Romans had been dealing with their insurrection, their disobedience for years. And by nailing their Messiah to the cross, the Pontius Pilate was declaring final victory. The Romans thought that they had won. They thought that they had claimed a victory. The Pharisees, who wanted Jesus crucified because he was stealing their followings from them, they thought they had claimed a victory. See, he's not the Messiah. Bible says, cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. He's hanging on a tree right now. He's cursed. He's not your guy. Yet, they misunderstood that Jesus was cursed on our behalf, and he took that curse upon himself. But while Jesus hung on that cross, he endured God's wrath and his judgment for the sins of the world. He paid the price. Think about this for a second. He paid the price for the sins of the very people who were persecuting him. As they nailed him to the cross and they mocked him, Jesus prayed to the Father. He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He paid the price for the sins of the disciples who fled, for Peter who denied. He paid the price for our sins, though they had not yet been committed. He paid for the sins of the world, and having completed that payment, having endured the wrath of God for our sins on our behalf, he said, it is finished. He looked up to the heavens, and he said, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he left that body on the cross, and he ascended to be at the right hand of the throne of God. And guess who he took with him? He had a companion on that trip, the thief on the cross, who earlier that day had repented of his sin and asked Jesus to save him. He said, Lord, remember me when you enter into that kingdom. He's not just saying, hey, remember we were here together, but he's saying, remember me in that concerned, continual remembrance, top of mind way. And as he ascended into the heavens and he went through those uh, pearly gates, he said, I've got company. And he brought that thief with him. The payment for our sins was finished. The work required to receive us into his kingdom was finished. Our reconciliation to God is finished. And having finished his righteous work, our Lord ascended to the heavens. His body was taken. Talk about the humanity of Christ. He died. That body was separated from its soul. It became lifeless. It was taken down off that cross. It was laid in that tomb. It laid there for three days under Roman guard. But on the third day, our Lord took his life back up. He reanimated that body, came back in. He exited that grave. He overcame death. And 40 days later, he ascended into heaven in bodily form, opening the gates of heaven to all who believe, giving us that confident expectation of eternal life. We know that we're going to rise again someday. And not just our souls are going to go float in the clouds for a while, but our bodies will be risen again in their glorified form. And we will be personally, physically, 
in the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have that hope. We have that confident expectation because our Lord rose again the third day. Unto us a son is given. And this verse speaks to the, to the divinity of Christ. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And watch this. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This victory of overcoming sin, overcoming the grave, being saved, being received into God's kingdom, God establishing his kingdom again on earth, putting an end to sin, putting an end to evil, putting an end to wrongfulness, putting an end to disease, to want, to despair. That victory was just as certain back then as it is now. These scriptures speak to the reason. This victory is certain because of the divinity of Christ. This is God's victory. This is God's mission. He's going to accomplish it. You cannot derail God. Man cannot defeat God. Man tries to defeat God. Man cannot defeat God. Even in their own imaginations, man cannot defeat God. How much mythology do you read where somebody tried to fight Zeus or somebody tried to fight Hercules or somebody tried to fight Athena or whoever and they lose? And these are imaginary gods and imaginary stories. Think about the truth. The one true God who truly did create the heavens and the earth. I mean, the guy who speaks and there's the stars in the universe. How are you going to beat that guy? Man cannot defeat God. You cannot defeat the one true God. The Bible tells us that the government would be upon his shoulder. He is in control. He's in control. He raises up kings. He puts down kings. He raises up empires. He puts down empires. We're worried about America standing in the world. Well, we better vote for the right people. You need to trust God for that. Our country rose by the grace of God. There wasn't a single Republican in existence when the country was founded. I'm not partisan. There wasn't a Democrat in existence when the, company, when the country was founded either. This country rose to power. By God working world events and pulling things to his own pleasure. And you look at the effect of our position as a superpower. What's been the effect of that? The gospel's being preached all around the world. Where are the missionaries that go through all the world coming from? They're coming from America. There are missionaries from other countries. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we're doing all of it. But there's a bit, our influence on, uh, in, in spreading Christianity and spreading the gospel around the world, our influence as a nation has been a very big impact. God raised us up, I believe, for that purpose. He will raise us up, and when it's his time, he, we will, he will put us down as a nation. We're not to lament that. We're to trust him in the process. The Bible tells us that the government's on his shoulders. He's in control. We can trust him. And the Bible tells us that his name shall be called Wonderful. Wonderful. Full of wonder. We're talking about miracles here. Amazing works. The feeding of the 5,000 we studied here a few weeks ago. The healing of the blind man. The lame man. The, the man who couldn't speak. The deaf man. The, the man who was, who was uh, paralyzed. That they cut out the hole in the roof and lowered him down. Right there in front of Jesus, the, the water into wine, the walking on the water, the rising from the dead, 
He's wonderful. He's full of wonder. The amazing works. Counselor. This is an advisor. This is a teacher. This is a mentor. This is a leader. His name shall be called Counselor. Did they not call him Rabbi? The mighty God, the everlasting Father. He is God in flesh. The word from John chapter 1 who gave light to every man. Saved those who believe and became flesh and dwelt among us. And he is the Prince of Peace. When I was growing up, there was a statistic that was being passed around that there had only been like six or seven days in the 20th century where there was not a war being fought somewhere. I don't know how we've done in the 21st century. I don't think we've had a single day without war in the 21st century, but I can't prove that. I didn't look that up. Why all the war if he's the Prince of Peace? Well, we're not talking about peace between nations. We're talking about that word shalom. Shalom. It means completeness. It means safety. It means welfare, or, or in our culture, well-being. Because you say welfare, we think about a government program. But it's talking about your personal welfare, your personal well-being, your health. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the one that puts it all together and takes care of you and makes sure that your needs have been met. If that's not divine, I don't know what is. We can believe in these promises of God because of who he is. You know, we get caught up in the day-to-day, in the temporary, in the here and now. And we say prayers, but they don't feel like they get answered. And we wonder about that. And we have needs and we have problems that just persist and they never get better. But yet, have we prayed about them? In James chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, James writes, Ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and ye receive not because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your own lust or your own desires. We're heading into a season that is very materialistic, that is very self-centered, yet we couch it in the words peace and love. People will tell you that they are celebrating the birth of Jesus while being completely unaware of the gospel. And pursuing the very things that run nature to, that run contrary to his nature and his teachings. We come before the Lord today and many of us with unanswered prayers in our hearts. And God answers those prayers in his time and according to his will. But what we need to do is to return to these precepts and these lines from the Sunday school lesson, Brother Wayman, in these scriptures. We have hope. We have confident expectation. But why do we? Because unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. We have this Christ, this Messiah, this Deliverer who has lived everything we've gone through. He did it without sin. And then he went to the cross where he took the judgment of God upon himself for your sin. He cleared you of that debt, of that guilt. Whatever guilt, regret you have in your life, God has cleansed you and forgiven you of those. I drive down the road and I think of something I did, sometimes it's something I did 20 years ago. Sometimes it's something I did 20 minutes ago. Idiot. What's wrong with you? Awful. But God's forgiven me. He's cleansed me. He loves me. Loves you too. Cleansed you too. Forgiven you too. And if we center on that, then our prayer request will be more in accordance with his will and in alignment with his plan. 
and we'll see those prayers answered. But we need to be centered on Christ. Every year at this time, the debate online between all the preachers is Christmas trees, yes or no. It's like you're asking the wrong question. You can have a Christmas tree. You can put presents under the tree. You can, you can read stories about Santa. But don't let, don't let what we've talked about here this morning slide to the back burner or slip to the bottom shelf. This is why we're here. Because we have a Christ, a Messiah, a Savior who has loved us and who has redeemed us. So as we stand and we sing our hymn, Amazing Grace, the first and last verse, let us actually remember the amazing grace that he has given us.